Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Akshay Satish. Akshay is the founder of Zixana Consulting, a consulting company that helps companies scale their culture and strategy through play. Akshay, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Darren. Real pleasure. So take me back in time. I know you've got a, just an incredibly interesting background. Just start with just where you grew up and what were the influences on you? Sure, yeah. So I was born in India. And then when I was three months old, I moved to Malaysia. My dad, I think, was already there and spent basically all my high school, like through kindergarten through 12, life in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. It is a multicultural country. Indians, Chinese, Malays, kind of a really kind of a symbiosis of the region in some form. Uh, and so my neighbors were Chinese and Malay and different ethnicities. We celebrated everybody's like holidays. And then my school, the one that I graduated from, I think one of the telling points that I say is that I graduated with 113 students represented by 53 different countries. And so that in itself, I think just, you know, I couldn't find two Indian friends if I wanted to, that, you know, that type of thing. So really diverse, opened my eyes up whether I liked it or not to just different people, food, culture, ways of life and backgrounds. Uh, so that was a huge influence in my upbringing for sure. So fascinating. You know, for me, I spent a year in Switzerland and I talk about being the new kid, the foreign kid, the American kid, but it was more or less, I wouldn't say monolithic, but just like a pretty, everyone was pretty similar there. I was obviously different in many ways, but just fascinating, like 53 different nationalities representing amongst what, a hundred and some odd people. That's like, how has that influenced you both as a kid, but just even carrying that forward as an adult? A few things that I think I can definitely say. One is that the level of curiosity that I have now, I can now look back and say, I know where it came from. I'm just a curious person about people, for sure. And I think that's one thing that I was just naturally trained to do, whether you know in the classrooms or in between classes, et cetera, at school, and or even just meeting people you know, around our neighborhood. Curiosity is one that I think one of my values probably that I that probably got ingrained as part of that upbringing. The other that I think is interesting is adaptability. And I think that is really, you know, being able to see something that is different and new and then shift to meet it or to change to it. You know, I think I got better at that because I practiced it so much. You know, one simple example is, you know, going to a friend's house who is Japanese, they ate sushi. I'd never eaten sushi in my life, like growing up, uh, because my mom made Indian food. We'd get Malaysian food from outside. I actually had never used chopsticks before. And so, you know, they didn't have, they didn't have chopstick helpers back then. You know, you just had to figure it out. Parents didn't even give me rubber bands to put on the top. They were just like, this is how we eat. We don't have forks. <laughs> and so, 
you know, just learning to adapt really fast and making things work as opposed to thinking that I have to act a certain way and then not meeting that, just kind of embracing the current situation is kind of what I practiced a lot in my life. And so I think that leads to adaptability as a skill or as an innate value. I can imagine just, just thinking as a kid, just like what's in your lunchbox, <laughs> 53 different nationalities, just can imagine from you know, sushi to Indian food to just, just cuisine from all across the globe. In my uh, middle school days, I literally used to exchange food with people because their food was more interesting than mine. I always ate mine. And so we would do exchanges all the time. And my mom would, my mom would go, hey, did you eat your lunch? I'm like, uh, yeah, I think I finished it. <laughs> but actually someone else finished it and I finished theirs. So that's exactly what we, we were doing. So play that forward. What, what was next for you? Because you still have just a real interesting just tapestry of a career. Like, what was next for you after uh, moving out of Malaysia? I'd visited the United States a couple of times growing up, and I went to a British school from kindergarten through seventh grade, and an American school from eighth grade to twelfth grade. Both of those were international schools, but American-based curriculum. And so my connection to the United States became stronger, partly because I was just I was like, "Wow, this is a pl- this is a melting pot of the world, and stories of people who are Indian like me of origin and all over the world." come here and can make things happen. And, you know, the education system here from a secondary, you know, from the college system is definitely at the time superior, I would say maybe still the same. So I knew I wanted to come here in some form. I also was interested in medicine at the time. And I took AP physics, chemistry, bio, all this sort of stuff to set myself up. Came to Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania for bioengineering undergrad with a focus on pre-med. Within one semester, I quickly was like, wow, med school here takes eight years. That's too long. Like, I want to do something now. And so just said, hey, I'm just going to stick with biotechnology, bioengineering with a focus on entrepreneurship. Did that for, for four years, then did a master's. And then ended up joining a kind of my dream job at the time was the small medical device startup within this big company, um, DuPont. And it was perfect because, you know, there wasn't risk. It was stabilized by a large company. And I could really exercise all the things I wanted to do with medicine, technology, and practical application. So that was my first career. In the middle of that career, I got a little bored of the corporate culture that I was in. I needed some creative outlet. Back in high school and middle school, I was a big theater person. I would just always do something creative. Started an improv theater in Philadelphia based on a Craigslist ad, 10 random strangers met in an alley in Philly is my story around that. And started doing short form improv. The company's called the Philly N Crowd. Started in 2003, still does weekly shows even today since then. And that shifted my lens on the world as well with regards to my, I was still working my day job at the, at the medical device company, but it shifted the way that I thought and kind of interacted with people. Yeah, it's interesting. We actually have a few parallels. One of which is I was pre-med and undergrad and just was like, man, I want to, I want to get out there in my twenties and actually do something and challenge myself, which is to say med school isn't challenging because of course it is and very rigorous, but just it, that was such a longer path, but also just this evolution or maybe revolution from just the hard sciences into obviously much more of the the soft skills focus like so take me through that a bit so bioengineering to improv theater 
to then focusing on just you know changing behaviors and just a focus on play like what was that awakening for you that that helped you to make that shift not just from an interest perspective but actually going all in and actually making it a big shift from a vocational perspective too yeah so while i was at that company i was leading product development teams so i would interact with diverse teams etc great job and then with the improv theater on the side what i realized was that the fundamental things of how we interact with each other in improv rehearsal, not on stage for performance. Rehearsal was really around how do we listen so keenly to each other? How do we make other people look good? How do we take what's in the moment and make it huge, make it the best thing in the planet? Whenever I left rehearsal, I felt great inside and out. And I just felt so fulfilled and that I had a community that would support me. And that my question in my mind was, can we do more of that in my day job? Can we have more of that feeling of connection and creativity and helping other people thrive? Can we bring that more alive in the workplace? And that's the beginning of Zixana. I whiteboarded in the office at DuPont and said, I want to bring more of what we do in improv land to corporate America. And at the time, you know, Second City, USB, UC, UCB, a number of other larger companies or theater companies were doing corporate training. And I think what was missing, though, was the, the practical, here's how to make it stick. Here's how to do something simple to make it real. So fast forward 2010, my wife and I left Philadelphia, the East Coast, came to San Diego. That transition gave me an opportunity to focus 100% of my time on Zixana, specifically around leadership development, training at first. And again, back to that, how do we just go back to simple things without any digital technology? Our, our original workshops were no tables, no PowerPoint. And just that alone was different for adults. Oh, I have to show up and be in front of people without anything hiding. And so that was the premise for can we get adults to connect deeply with each other, to help each other, motivate each other when things get tough? Because in the workplace, things are challenging. And can we get them excited about their work, even just that alone? And those workshops initially were around that, were around just basic premise around communication and collaboration techniques. And again, very improv-based, but again, very playful at the same time. So that, that that was the beginning, at least. I find improv fascinating. One of my closest friends was an improv in high school. And just, I remember just, we tried to, of course, throw curveballs at him and just to get him off, you know, just to probably not be such supportive friends. But for people who don't know what improv is, you mind just kind of level setting in terms of what that is and, and what it looks like, both from a, an actor perspective, but also from an audience perspective? Yeah, sure. So there's a few different styles of improv theater. There's two main styles. One is called short form improv, where it's like whose line is it anyway, where there's short scenes that are created based on audience suggestion. Nothing is scripted. Everything is made up on the spot. And they're usually shorter games, three to th- two to three minutes long, etc. And they do a whole show for 90 minutes based on that. Another type of improv is long form. You get one suggestion from the audience, and you create 30 minutes from that one suggestion. And I dabbled in both, and both require different skills. Long form really requires you to think strategically, actually, to be able to weave a story together 
based on what's happening right now and also think about the future, but also don't get out of the present moment because you've got to piece this thing together for 30 minutes based on one word. And so I think a lot of those skills that you're learning, both types of improv, from an audience perspective, if it looks good, it looks like it was just, it looks scripted. It looks like they already knew what was happening. And so that, from an improv perspective, I just couldn't help but think about my team in the workplace. How can my team show up so that it just looks like we already knew what was going to happen or looks scripted? We're so prepared and we're so ready to adapt. So those are the parallels for me. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about things that are just really important leadership attributes, just of listening deeply or listening intently, making people look good. Like, God, what a great team member you are when you can just think about other people and how they're being perceived. And also love what you said, stay in the moment. Obviously, you know, being present is such an important mindset of, of the best leaders, but really interesting connections for improv and then actually bringing that into the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what I was thinking about when we first started. So tell me more about place. I mean, I think people think about that from a, a kid perspective. We go play with toys. We play out in the yard, play. Even my kids, 10 and 12, are still playing. Yeah, what does that look like on adults? Yeah, great question. So let me back up. I mean, improv to me was the foundation of where Zixana started, but we pivoted to words more of play-based learning for adults. The reason is that improv is just a playful tool. There are other playful tools as we discovered. And for adults specifically, the way that we define, one of the things that's key about play is that there are many different definitions of play actually, but the simplest one that I connect to is just an activity that someone likes to do without anyone asking them to do it. I get to stop, I get to start, I get to do what I want with it for however long. It's a truly empowered state where I'm in full control, potentially, unless I'm working with other people, then I have to collaborate. But if it's full of joy, as soon as it stops being fun, it's not play anymore. So that's kind of the simplest definition, um, even that has a few different attributes to it. And so for adults, my first question sometimes is, well, if you had free time and you could choose something that you like to do and brings you a smile on your face or fills you up inside, what would that be? And so people answer differently. Some people just say reading a book on the beach or in my room, painting, you know, or doodling. Some people say I'm working on my car, you know, just kind of going at it. I lose track of time. That's the other attribute of play, by the way. For me, one of the things that I enjoy doing, I enjoy two types of play, but one is exercise, like moving my body. I really love activity for some reason. And if I were to choose anything, I'd be like, go surfing or I'll go play tennis. And I have different interests, but they're all physical in nature. And so it means something different for everyone. And to be able to connect with what is it that fills me up and or fills me up with joy or just gets me a break from, you know, the cortisol-inducing work life sometimes that we have, that's the simplest way to answer the question in terms of how does play show up for adults. It's interesting as you talk about play and all these attributes, it's just almost like fundamentally conflicts with just work, at least the, the definition of work, right? It's like it takes effort 
probably not done by choice. Yes, you do get an outcome that hopefully gives you some sense of a return. But how do you actually go about working with individuals and teams in terms of like how do you bring play into the workplace? Some of the tools you mentioned, improv being one of them, like what does it actually look like practically speaking? And how can other people actually start to do some of those things within their teams? Yeah. So, I mean, from our perspective, you know, we, we come into companies to, and we program this out, right? So in training around certain skills. So here, so here's the thing. I think one key factor here is that we don't necessarily, or I don't really think that play is accessible to everybody if we just define play and we said, hey, go play more. I don't think it's accessible to people. I think people in adults, I'm specifying, I think adults have a lot going on in their lives. And so to understand why it's useful for certain things is how we can get people, adults, to engage in play. And so back to your question, in the workplace, we can't just show up and say, okay, time for playtime. They have to know why. What's the purpose of this? What am I going to get out of this? then they're more likely to engage in a playful activity or a play-based approach to training or coaching. They have to get an outcome out of it. That's usually the case. So we need to present that. And there are outcomes of play. We've studied this. There's three outcomes that we know happen when you're in a playful state. One is you're more open to new possibilities. The second is that you're more connected to people and or the common goal of which you are working toward together with. And the third thing is that you're more likely to take risks or try new things. Those three things are very useful when you're talking about things like innovation or addressing change or even my own leadership behavior. You know, I need to be able to try new stuff. But if I just do it with the workplace setting, the consequences can be high for failure. So play can be a place where people experiment with new things and try new things with a low stakes environment. That's how we present it to adults. And so your second question was, how do you bring this to people's teams? How did they do bring it? You know, there is some very basic things. If you just, you know, in this world, post-pandemic or pseudo post-pandemic, what we found is that the face-to-face, just connecting with people is huge. People love it. People need it. People want it right now. And so I would advise team leaders, et cetera, if you're back in the office, you know, spend five minutes, spend 10 minutes, maybe not even more than that, just reconnecting with people. And most people call them icebreakers and things like that. Yeah, you can call it what you want, but be purposeful about it. Know that people actually are engaging for the right reason. The way you show up, by the way, as a leader, if you present it as an icebreaker, that's how they're going to be taking it. If you present it as an opportunity to reconnect with people and enjoy our time together, that's how they're going to take it. So small things matter. So just uh, along the theme of taking risks, so let's play. How can we bring play into this actual podcast recording? So I'll turn that one over to you. So any any thoughts on... uh on ways we can get more innovative, just, you know, introducing some playful concepts to really bring it to life? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing about taking risks is that what you want to do is try to push yourself out of your comfort zone. That's usually what taking a risk means. So in order to do that, we need to find a place where we want to change the way we see things. 
So let's do this game real fast. This game is called What Is This? or Object Brainstorm. So I'm just going to pull a random object out of my desk here. And here it is, right? There's nothing in it. But what is this, Darren? In general, we, we agree on what this is, right? What is it? It's a cup. It's a cup. Yeah, great. Okay, what else could it be? And we'll go back and forth. And when we say the word, we're going to use it like that. So for example, I'll start. It's a hat. So I'm going to wear a hat. What else could it be, Darren? It's storage for pencils. Oh, great. Excellent. Yes, wonderful. So a storage. I'm going to put that in here. Yes, great. What else could it be? Oh, it's a spittoon. <laughs> I'm not going to show you that, but you know, I'll, I'll just use this spittoon. What else could it be? Along those lines, it's a shot glass. It's a shot glass. Great. I have nothing to do. <laughs> Again, let's go a little bit beyond, right? We're still in the realm of the same. I would say this is a rolling pin. It's not even. So you're going to get some funky tortillas out of this one if I use it as a rolling Let's do one more. What else could it be, Darren? It's a musical instrument. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I can. Can you hear that? I don't know if you can hear that. Yeah, great. The, that's a quick example of one. So you can take any object and just start to play with it. How did that feel for you, though, Darren? Let me ask you that first. Yeah, it's fun. It pushes you out of your comfort zone a little bit. It, obviously, you look at it from a traditional day-to-day utility perspective, but it's... Um, obviously pushing some of the boundaries and getting you to think in, in different ways beyond just, yes, it's a, it's a cylinder-ish and it's used for drinking and, and that's it. And I think if you notice, that's great. If you notice, it took a few back and forth to really push ourselves away from what we think to be real because you even went back to a shot glass. Well, that's close to a glass, right? And so that's natural for adults. But if we keep pushing and we make it okay to say anything. That's what play is. That's how we're playing with ideas. Uh, so that's a quick example of one. Hopefully, hopefully that was that was uh, what you were looking for. Yeah, no, that was fun. I appreciate that. But to like, land the plane. So we did that in a team building exercise. Whether you want to call it an icebreaker, or innovation exercise, a way to think differently. Like, what would I do next with that? Yeah. So that's part of the process that you need to go through. So that's only one step. And that would be kind of a new way of thinking, or it would be a precursor to a brainstorming session. So now that our our brains are wired in a way to look at this object differently, now let's look at our problem in the workplace differently. So right after that, I wouldn't see, most people see the same problem statement, or we come to a team together and we say, okay, we got to fix this problem. Everyone has some connection to the problem or some connection to what it was. And to move away from what it could look like takes a different part of our brain. So this game helps set up for that brainstorming session. That's only one step of a creative problem-solving session, right? So you can use playful techniques to set ourselves up to get the most out of different parts of process. In this case, it would be creative problem-solving, for example. And then from brainstorming, you go somewhere else. You actually filter ideas. Some are good, some aren't good. That's a different part of the process, but you don't need play for that. But to expand our capability, we need a playful mindset to get to that part of the process. Yeah, what a great way to prime the mental pump, if you will. And and it's interesting, I was just reading this book recently, and it talks about if you about consensus. If you bring a bunch of people together and you say, you know, what's your favorite? ice cream flavor. And they say all these different flavors. But if you say, no, you have to all agree on one, it pretty much always comes out as vanilla or chocolate, which is could exactly happen in a session like this, where you have a problem statement, 
everything gets watered down. And that was my experience of almost corporate life. And sometimes you have an idea, you elevate it more and more input, it ends up getting really vanilla and watered down, looks nothing like the original idea that was innovative. And, and I, I like that example of, of how you can start to bring some more innovative context or concepts to the forefront. Yeah. The key question to ask there for leaders is what else could it be? That question can be applied to real work or the game that we just played. I love that. Yeah. What else could it be? It's kind of reminds me of the, the very rudimentary knowledge of improv, which is so and or whatever the, the statement is that connects things like what else could it be? Actually, there's another improv concept called if this is true, what else can be true? So if this is truly a rolling pin, what else could be true? You know, that people love tortillas that are totally funky. <laughs> like that's a brand new idea, a skew in the marketplace, potentially. That same question you mentioned when you talked about play, you talked about kids for a second. It's exactly what the question that kids ask themselves. They don't voice it out. They're playing with something. They're generally thinking about what else could I do with this? What else could it be? What else? If this, what next? That's a playful mindset at work. And so if we can just get to that place in our minds, like you said, to prime our brains for what work could be like or use it in a specific scenario, then we're going to get that outcome from it. That's interesting. I can just see people just thinking, well, I'm just not that playful. I'm just not that fun. I'm not that creative. And creative is an interesting word. I was having a conversation last week and talked about creativity doesn't always have to look like it does for a, a Van Gogh or for a, a songwriter or whatnot. It can look very differently. And it sounds like what you're talking about is play can look different based on the context, based on people's styles and preferences. Yes, absolutely. I, I get this question a lot. Um, and there's some books out there to think about your creative confidence, or I think creativity is actually after play. So you can't become creative unless you are playful. And so what, what we tell people is that you don't need to practice creativity because that sounds like there's already an outcome in it. Like you have to produce something creative. No. Before you produce something creative, you just have to practice playing. And like you said, some people have preferences or styles. So if you can practice and connect with your style, your preference, ideas, you know, new thoughts, uh, innovation, they'll come in creative moments. The greatest innovators could never predict when their idea was actually going to happen. They just practice tinkering and playing, etc. You look at uh, you know Van Gogh, you look at other early inventors, you see the end product, but you don't see all the iterations or the play-based just messing around with stuff that they that they did. Inventors tend to be seen as, you know, crazy scientist people type of thing. What they're doing is playing. And then eventually they stumble across some creative moment. So I think play is a precursor to creativity creativity precursor to innovation. I think that's really powerful because I think so many times we're just, you know, we're ripping our hair. Like, we've got to be more creative. We've got to be more innovative. Come on team. Like push yourself further, come up with these examples. And so much of it, I think is what you, the word I'm thinking of is like whimsical, you know, maybe that's too a little bit out there, but just this is idea where you feel free to explore, not worried about judgment, not worried about, will this actually work? How can this work? Just a much different more open, more adaptable to get back to one of that more curious mindset, some of the words you used to describe your upbringing and the impact it had, but just 
what a great and what the right mindset that you need to even just set the foundation for being creative or being innovative. You framed it in a way that I did not. And I would say that it's very helpful. When I was in my corporate, you know, at DuPont, I think what I found, why did I need to go out and do improv on the side? It's, I think, because I did not find a super supportive, free to share my ideas openly, be open to new ways of doing things that didn't exist in my corporate culture. So I needed to find something somewhere else where that outlet needed to be exercised. And hence, I jumped on something completely different. That's what you said is exactly right. If we can marry those two together, where is there a workplace where we are free to share ideas, suggestions, challenge people openly? By the way, that's psychological safety. That can be created. I, now we know this, at least for the work that we've been doing for the last 12 years. Actually, we think play can get you to those stages faster. I can just just imagine people just listening to this go, this sounds awesome, but people are going to think I'm absolutely crazy. Like I come into the work, I come into my next team meeting, let's, let's play. You know, this, this blue ceramic coffee mug or whatever the material was that you just showed a few minutes ago. And it's going to get shot down these experienced people that just, this is the way we've always done it. Obviously DuPont's a great example. I know you were in a small startup, but like a big company, like what are some things that people can do to introduce it in a way that gets people to be open to it and and less fearful of it, but also seeing some of the benefits? That's a great idea. Great thought. The first thing though, I would say is back to the person that is the skeptic, the play skeptic. We love play skeptics because here's why. Because there's something about the culture of the team or the organization that actually is empowering that person to say, let's just keep it the same. I would argue that that person isn't the person to bring this new light or new way of doing things into the organization. It's someone else. Maybe someone on their team is more likely to be seen or be known as a playful person. And so in some ways, what I'm saying is, The person that brings some small little activity or engagement into their meeting needs to own it. They need to actually believe that this is useful. Back to that play has a purpose. And when you believe that it does, even though you have skeptics in the room, you will shift them because you still believe that this is going to help move one degree away from where we were. So that's my first tip is, Don't assume that you're the person that's the best person to bring this into the room. Find someone else that actually owns this or relates to this more. And I will say this broadly, what our experience has been is that the younger generations in the workplace are much more open to playful means or engagements in short spurts in the workplace. So maybe there's your first clue is that if you're of a baby boomer or Gen X or even a traditionalist in terms of the generation you connect with or identify with may not be the best person to bring this whole, uh, bring this to light. And then the last thing I'll say is back to that play with purpose. It's, it's got to be something meaningful that you're trying to get out of doing this. It can't just be because you heard this podcast or you saw some TED talk on play and you hope that it's useful. It's, you've got to think about it a little bit more. You've got to think about what is this going to help my team do 
And how is it going to help them be more productive or innovative? That is an important component of making sure you're connecting those dots for people, especially the skeptics in the room. That's super important. I always think about, hey, don't just behavior change for the sake of behavior change. Like, tell me why. Why am I going to put in extra time, put an extra effort, perhaps even take a personal risk in, in trying something that, that is new and different that may stand out from the norm? Yeah, absolutely. And there is one other thing, you know, I think organizations, teams, we go back to that concept that we were talking about when I was growing up in Malaysia, the adaptability, the ability to adapt and change is needed in the workplace in most cases. And yet we don't practice adapting and changing if we're just sticking to our process all the time. So I would say that if your culture or your organization is one that needs to embrace change or make things different, play is one of the options to be able to make that happen on a small level on a day-to-day basis or in a meeting so that people are getting the exercise. It's a muscle. Play is a muscle that we've just, adults have tends to be lost touch with unless you have kids, then you're forced back into it a little bit. Yeah, definitely having kids and you get back into whether it's playing trucks or toys or playing out in the yard or whatnot. But what can people do just to cultivate a greater sense of play, both within themselves and other people? I know you talk about the purpose of it. What are the outcomes? Uh, making sure you it may not be you as the right person to bring those play concepts or exercises to a group. But what are some ways that we can actually cultivate that, that concept of play within ourselves and other people? So... One of the things that we found, and this is from a book called Play by Stuart Brown, Dr. Stuart Brown, and there's some more work beyond him, is that adults specifically have, and kids too, have play styles or play preferences. So the first thing that you have to do is figure out, you know, based on the definition of play that we talked about before, what's an activity that you just enjoy doing in your free time? It probably tends to be some category of play preference. I describe my own physical, right? So people will see me playing tennis and pickleball and surfing and exercising, you know, VR, uh, boxing, whatever. They're all physical play preferences. So that's one category. There are other categories like creative, which is people who doodle, paint, sketch, things like that. Uh, You also can have creative on a digital frame. So if you can, you know, kind of graphically change things, photography and, and do post development, things like that. That's a, that's a form of creative play. There's also imaginative play, which to me is actually kind of drifting your thoughts. Some people are really good at daydreaming. I remember back in my British school days, I was told, hey, stop daydreaming. You're staring out the window, focus on the lesson. And I would now say, interesting that you're daydreaming. I wonder what you're so curious about out there as opposed to in here. And so imaginative play tends to be one that's more you know, taking disparate concepts, staring up the clouds and nature. And so there's a number of different ones. There's nature play, there's object play, and a couple others. I would say, first, think about which ones of those, one or more, that adults you tend to do, you tend to actually gravitate to. And make sure at the end of that play experience, think about and get in touch with, what did I get out of this? You know, every time I do some physical activity, for example, for me, I feel really, you know, the endorphins are running and I feel really good. I can do anything afterwards. Uh, I just feel like cortisol, my stress levels decrease. Those are the things that play can give you, those play styles. So 
I would say start to make sure that you're doing those play styles more often in your week. Because if we don't, we're less likely to manage our energy when it comes to the relationship to work. And you're less likely to have creative moments because you're not playing, you're not exercising that muscle. So those are the basic concepts. Again, everybody's a little bit different. So you've got to find that one or two things that you know will will feels like play and just start doing it more. Just another powerful example of just the importance of just like personalizing everyone's whether it's the way we develop as leaders, whether it's the way we learn, whether it's the way we coach people, just another example of just our play preferences. But take that all the way home in terms of, so I, I play, whether it's physical and surfing or it's more, you said creative, like I paint or I even write. I don't know what, what classifies as creative, but how do I actually connect that and bring some of the juice that I gain from that play to actually to my work environment? Like, how do you make that connection? Yeah, so there's there's two simple things that we talk about. One is... There's something called the Pomodoro technique, which is uh, Pomodoro is Italian for Apple timer. Productivity in the workplace tends to be, let's just crank it out, you know, Zoom calls back to back and meetings back to back. It's actually not great. You know, you yourself may understand this, but really my ability to be really strategic or make great decisions or actually produce great work matters based on my energy management. And so what we talk about is you need to build in your own play breaks through the day. And it's not long. It's Pomodoro technique, which is 45 minutes to 60 minutes of productivity with 15 minutes of playtime. Now you can kind of shift those numbers if you need to, but if you're doing back to back all day, most likely about 3 PM or 4 PM, your meetings, the people in them already get a sense of where your energy's at. It's been a long day. You may even say that, in, your, in the beginning of your meeting versus if you're practicing some type of play break that energizes you, that gives you a moment to take a break away from your computer or your emails or whatever, even 15 minutes makes a huge difference to my cortisol level, to my endorphin level. And when I come and start a meeting that way, it shows up immediately in my body language, in my energy. So one is build it into your daily practice find ways to take play breaks. The other is to actually incorporate it in your teams. You were talking about this as well. So, hey, I can't change that I'm back-to-back all day. Well, then utilize, by the way, other people need it as well. So we've said this before, but bring small little engagements to relieve people of the burden to think that they're always on. Let's turn it off and still be in front of each other for five to 10 minutes. And let's reconnect. Let's find fun ways to talk about new ideas. Let's just see where people are and their stress level and work. Anything isn't actually getting work done is a break. And if it's fun, then it's a play break for everybody involved. So serve other people by doing it, not just yourself. Also, just I have the benefit of seeing you in action or I've seen you in action and just bringing in a little levity, a little silliness, just like what a great way to get people to just lower their guard a little bit and really show up and connect as people. And now when you jump back to maybe it's something around innovation or answering a problem statement, like you mentioned a little while back is we're just more comfortable in taking some of those risks to your point of psychological safety. So what a great way 
of just bringing some levity, changing the energy, managing the energy, and just also lowering some of those barriers. Well, you just did it fantastically. You said, you know, you watched me in action. The reason for be being silly or whatever you saw me do and, and connect people together, lower the stakes. There was a reason behind it. On the back end, there's something we did with that energy. The connection was utilized in a way that people felt like now that play thing that we did, it was useful. That's a key part. So I think going back to that was, is really key for leaders to bring that more into their workplace. Akshay, I appreciate this. It was a lot of fun to, to play. Thanks for humoring me on just actually doing it real time. But where can people go just to, to connect with you on social media, but also learn about the work that you're doing, the thinking that you're doing? Yeah, so zixanaconsulting.com or Zixana Play on Instagram, LinkedIn. You can find us there, Zixana Consulting. Most of our work and or the new things that we're doing, we put out there. Uh, we try new things all the time. You know, we developed a horse program last year, horse play. We just did drum session and facilitation. And so you really can find us in those avenues and connect with any one of our team members, if not me. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Akshay. I appreciate it. Thanks, Darren. Real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks, and see you all in the next episode.